Law, Policy, and Markets. What is the message that we want to give to people, right? Because I was thinking, people read news, they read the news, but if we had done this a week ago, I think the answer would be different. Welcome to Millbank Conversations. I'm Alan Marks. Today, I'm joined by Fabiana Sakai in Sao Paulo and Carlos Albaracin in New York, partners in Millbank's Capital Markets Group. Let's get to it. Fabiana and Carlos, thank you very much for joining me today. Thank you. Thank you, Alan. This is great. It's great to be in contact, you know, albeit virtually. I agree. Before we dive in, let me frame this a bit. Having worked on transactions in Latin America for over 20 years, I'm always struck by the diversity of the region, not just culturally and politically, but economically as well. Capital flows into Latin America have declined for years, despite an uptick last year. The ongoing pandemic creates some real challenges. Access to capital is one. We're seeing drops in trade, foreign remittances and commodities prices, along with debt defaults. Increased inequality is another challenge. One-third of the people in Latin America are poor, and one-third of those are living in severe poverty, numbers that are only getting worse with the ongoing pandemic. The forecasted drop in GDP for the region is at least 5% this year, and that makes it even harder, yet more necessary, to attract investment, to preserve manufacturing capacity and jobs, and to equitably allocate income. Yet capital markets of late remain robust. Fabiana, let's start with you. What are you seeing now in Brazil? You know, this crisis is unprecedented. It is unprecedented for the entire world. It's, it's affected all countries and all sectors of the economy worldwide. But particularly for Brazil, it is unprecedented in that it is the first time that we go through a crisis where local interest rates are at the lowest level ever. And interest rates are low elsewhere in the world too. And, and, and the combination of these two factors uh, creates and has created an interesting dynamic for the Brazilian capital markets. The Bovespa reached 94,000 points, which was a level that it had not reached since the beginning of the pandemic in the country in March. And I, I don't think that this is because, Ellen, investors really are optimistic or regained confidence, but there is this clear perception that there is an optimism in the capital markets that with the relaxation of the, the quarantine measures and the recovery and the reopening of the economies in several countries, the investors will be looking for higher returns. And hopefully there will be a demand for securities issued, not only by Brazilian companies, but also companies in the region. Thank you, Fabiana. And Carlos, too, if we look more broadly in the region, I know in Mexico, there's been a distinct lack of fiscal stimulus from the government. In the Andean region, that may be a bit different, but there obviously everywhere is a limited capacity for fiscal stimulus from governments and maybe a need for multilaterals to come in with additional sovereign loans, uh, subsidies maybe for private loans, debt deferrals, debt forgiveness, and so forth. What are you seeing and how's that impacting the capital markets? Thanks, Alan. Yes, I completely agree. I think both in Mexico and the rest of the ex-Brazil countries, I think governments are already in a sort of, you know, I would say dire or if not, uh, you know, pretty tight fiscal situation. And the last thing these governments want to do is to deploy too much of the sort of the, the, you know, public funding they have available to, you know, palliate the effects of the of the COVID-19 crisis because the ramifications of that could be very negative for the country and ultimately 
put the country in a in a more frail you know situation in the future for instance you know the the downgrades that have taken place already in mexico the downgrades have taken place already in colombia and peru you know there are a combination of factors that that play a role in those in those downgrades and what the rating agencies see as you know potential determinants and you know one is obviously the the impact of the decline in commodity prices all these are commodity exporting countries so to the extent that they're exporting metals or oil obviously that you know the decline in prices and demand internationally for those commodities is you know severely impacting the you know the revenue generating capacity of these countries and obviously tax revenue is very linked to exports and i think that and then the second aspect of it is the impact of the covid-19 pandemic on the financial system the you know because of the sort of loan losses and and you know delinquency rates the impact on you know the real economy where businesses are closing down the same way they're closing down elsewhere and for emerging markets how does that limited fiscal capacity for stimulus create unique challenges in my view if you compare to some of the more developed countries in you know, like the US or Canada is that the government is less able to sort of support the population and the um, and the economy with uh, its own money and it, it's therefore looking to you know, get support or at least a share of some of the burden from private sector participants, you know, multilateral agencies, as you mentioned. Yeah, you know, I'm sure that has political ramifications, too. And obviously, capital markets transactions or financial investment as a whole takes place in a broader societal and political context. This widening of inequality and the fact that so many people in Latin America are projected to be falling into poverty or even into severe poverty, you know, a third of the population, uh, perhaps even as much as 40% by the time this is done, that has impacts, I would think, also on political stability. How are the markets forecasting that if you look into, say, 2021 or longer-term investments? Fabiana? Well, I think that in Brazil, economic data already shows that there is a significant impact on the economy. There is a recession that has been triggered by the COVID-19 pandemic. The GDP forecasts have been cut back. There is an expectation of a contraction of 7.5% in 2020 and a slight recovery in 2021 of 4%. But still, there is an expectation that it will be a challenging period to face. And the matters are further exacerbated, I think, by the political situation. There is a, a rising political risk and also in an uncoherent approach to dealing with the spread of the disease, which is affecting and widening, as you, as you said, the effects on the lower income population. So we hope that the stimulus that the government is trying to, to implement will assist the easiness of, of the situation. But it's really hard to tell right now what, what the future holds for Brazil because the political turmoil enhances the, the uncertainty as to what the future holds for the country. And it's a very unprecedented crisis that everybody's experiencing. So for the time being, I would just say that the political turmoil adds a lot of uncertainty to the future of the country. So we'll slice that by sectors in a minute, but still staying geographically. Carlos, if you look at the from the perspective of cross-border investors, 
uh, especially investors from outside the region, although clearly there's lots of cross-border investment within solely within Latin America, you know, say from Mexico into Central America, from Brazil uh, into uh, other parts of the Southern Cone. But if you look at the perspective of investors from the United States, from Europe, uh, Korea, Japan, uh, elsewhere in the world, as they come in, are they going to be viewing Latin America as a region with region-wide economic and political issues? Or are there lots of differences between countries which might make some markets, maybe say Peru and Colombia or maybe Chile, more attractive than others, uh, setting aside extreme cases like you know Ecuador or Venezuela? You can't really set aside the extreme cases because they're, you know, with a different agenda, these agencies and these countries, or some of them, maybe not Japan, but I think Korea and China have a different take on, you know, on sort of populism and populistic governments. I think they see that as potentially a competitive advantage to be able to deploy, you know, capital to acquire resources and, you know, resource rich countries that have a, a tendency to have, you know, a more populist approach where you know, perhaps the U.S. and the European Union and other, you know, countries and the more sort of conventional, I guess, world are not necessarily providing any financial relief. And so this is an opportunity for them to step in and play a role. And I think, you know, I see that happening in Ecuador, as you mentioned, I see it happening in Venezuela. I think it's, I, I think it's going to happen in Argentina soon. I think it might happen in Mexico to the extent that, um, you know, the rhetoric in Mexico doesn't change because that's alienating, you know, people in the West, if you will, and potentially attracting, you know, and I think you need to add Russia to that list, <laughs> to be honest, you know, in addition to, you know, the sort of Chinese and Japanese and Korean investors. What about other drivers or opportunities for investments in relatively reliable countries like Chile, Peru or Colombia? I think there are opportunities in terms of liquidity issues. You know, companies are going to face liquidity issues and there are going to be restructurings. And I think that some of the opportunities to acquire businesses, I think, are going to be more, you know, more attractive now because prices will go down. And, you know, all these governments and sub-sovereign entities, you know, that have a, you know, a lot of financial muscle are going to be able to step in and, and do deals, I think, more effectively, perhaps, than in the recent past. I think in, in some countries in particular were valuations have been really high and therefore for the returns that these investors are looking to attain, they're not attractive. You know, for instance, you know, I don't know, Chile, Peru, Colombia, those are examples where, you know, countries where the rates of return are pretty or were pretty low for the investors that are looking for higher returns. And now maybe the picture looks a little differently because valuations have gone down, so, you know, returns are potentially higher. And, you know, these countries are in more desperate need for external capital. For other countries, like Argentina, despite yet another sovereign debt default, what investment catalysts stand out to you? I think the political thinking of the precedents, I think it's going to be a factor whether, you know, the government has the ability to raise capital otherwise. For instance, Argentina has no access to capital outside Argentina. Therefore, their, their only hope is to try to attract the Chinese investors, the you know, the Russian investors, the Korean investors. And I think it's also something that is going to be important for them to maintain the political support within the countries to be able to finance their relief plans, to be able to deploy, you know, money in the sort of sanitary assistance and in other, you know, financial assistance, particularly to the working class, which I think is something that everybody's, you know, looking to implement in different ways. But the countries that have no fiscal austerity or, you know, sound fiscal policy, you know, they're going to need to get the cash from somewhere. And I think in those instances, these Asian investors are, are going to be, I think, more 
you know, better position to participate in those markets than, than in other cases. Yeah, and I want to come back to something you mentioned about asset values, because obviously there's this complex interplay between currencies, commodity prices for many exporters in the region, and also interest rates as far as they relate to discount for future valuations on these assets. And many are long, very long-lived. So a mining investment that one decides to make today won't yield results for a decade and will not maybe so much be impacted by today's prices. Whereas a hospitality investment, uh, something in the tourism sector, airlines, those are you know, severely impacted by near-term situations. Fabiana, when you look at, you know, in Brazil, obviously there's been this history of bursts of M&A activity and asset bubbles, much of it fueled by domestic bank lending or Bende Essay, but attracting outside investors. Now, obviously, with the currency down, what do you see that doing to the M&A market, especially for cross-border investors into Brazil? Well, the, the currency devaluation was very abrupt and significant since the beginning of the year. As you said, now the real has regained some ground, but still the currency devaluation puts a lot of pressure on the, the economy. And I think it makes it makes it difficult for market players to actually estimate and project the value of a business. And if you think of infrastructure projects, for example, and the government is still very focused on moving forward with uh, the concessions for airports and toll roads, market players have a difficulty evaluating the value of those agreements and entering into long-term agreements like those. Yeah, and we're looking right now at concession agreements in Brazil and elsewhere, also in mass transit. And I think it is a challenge for investors even in the infrastructure sectors, which are known to have long-term steady cash flows protected for inflation and all the rest of it, it's very hard to know what things are worth. And you know, sudden changes like you're talking about in pricing over a short term like that, when there has not been a change in fundamentals, nor even a radical change in public policy over that time period to explain it, it tells me that that's really more noise than signal. So the effect that we see now is that usually when there is a currency devaluation, foreign investors are interested in investing in Brazil. But what's unprecedented about this crisis is that local interest rates are also very low. So that's something that is the first time that Brazil goes through a crisis where the interest rate locally is at a historic low level. So that also creates, I think, an additional factor for, for people to have difficulty in thinking of investments long-term in the country. But you're optimistic. I'm optimistic. I'm a Brazilian. To the bay. <laughs> <laughs> if you look at sectors for a moment, whether it's in M&A or capital markets issuances over the next, say, 12 months, where do you see the activity mostly being, either for new debt or refinancings? I believe that there will be opportunities in various sectors of the economy, especially for capital markets transactions. What we are seeing now is that there is an interesting effect that the crisis has caused in, in the capital markets because interest rates are so low in Brazil and also elsewhere in the world. There is an interesting dynamic that has been created by, by the combination of these two factors, which is that investors are looking now for higher return investments and are becoming less risk averse. And there is a perception that with the relaxation of the quarantine measures and the reopening of the economies, investors will need to look for investments that will 
yield better returns and they will probably demand securities from Latin American companies. What we're seeing now, and I'd like to just focus on, on the retail industry because we have just recently seen deals of retail companies that have been successful. And we see that companies that are in the retail industry and focused on online business, for example, e-commerce, are actually living through the crisis. Of course, they are having a negative impact in their results, but also they are trying to focus on their digital businesses and therefore developing a side of their business that will help them live through the crisis. We see the energy sector also being a sector that will need financing. They are now discussing a stimulus package with the NDS, and there will be the need for financing for the distribution companies in Brazil. For airlines, there is also the stimulus package that BNDS is proposing with funds coming from BNDS and from private institutions. For the agribusiness, there is an expectation that in the near future, they will have, um, especially for grain and oilseed producers, record high revenues because of the currency devaluation. So the expectation is that pulp and paper companies and commodities companies you know, in the agribusiness, will, meatpackers, will come to market too. And I suspect that the trade disputes between the United States and China has created a lot more markets in China for Brazilian agricultural exports. That's right. I want to pivot back to you, Carlos. What's your take? I think the areas uh, or sectors where we're starting to see already activity and traction in, in deals are you know, the companies that are in the natural resources space, both because they need, you know, they're very capital intensive businesses, so they need to continue raising, you know, capital. And also because, you know, the, the main challenge, I think, for investors in the past three to five years has been the low yields. So I think the yields are up now and, and that's going to present opportunities. We, you know, we recently closed a SEC bond offering for Ecopetrol, the Colombian state, you know, state-owned oil and gas company. And and this was on the face of basically them learning how impacted they were by COVID-19 and, and how impacted the industry was. And, you know, oil prices reaching sort of the lowest point in the last three years. But still, there was demand for the bond because they were willing to give investors, you know, yield. And I think that's if you have a reasonable, you know, kind of risk profile and a good yield, there's going to be demand for that. So I think companies in the resource, in the natural resources space, I think are going to be able to uh, raise capital and they, they absolutely have, you know, they can't really stop doing what they do. Uh, I think utilities in, across the region are going to need to also raise capital because a lot of the countries such as, you know, Colombia, Peru, I think Chile now, which is something I read this morning, they're imposing some really, you know, kind of mandated relief to be provided by public utilities and public services companies to offer, you know, financing plans for utility bills, defer payments, lower some of the rates. And I think this is going to impact financially these companies. So they're going to have to seek to raise capital to also face that this sort of new fate, new you know stage in their businesses where they're gonna it's gonna take longer for them to you know get paid and they're gonna need more liquidity to maintain the current ratings. If you look then at sources of debt capital for Latin American issuers or borrowers and you look at bank loans, public markets or private investors and unregistered offerings, 
where do you see most of the activity? And is the mix going to be changing because of the current situation? Or will the old trends just be continuing? Fabiana? Well, the the trend, and I don't know if this is going to be a sustainable trend in the future, but what we see now is, given that this is the first time that Brazil goes through a crisis where the local interest rates are at a historic low of 3% and interest rates elsewhere in the world are also low, these two factors create an, an interesting dynamic where the capital markets seems to be, for now, as I said, a, a trend for investors because they are seeking higher returns and securities issued by Latin American companies are usually, even though for some investors who are risk averse, not the best type of investment, but given the easiness on, on the risk aversion, I think, by, by investors and the need to look for better investments, securities of Latin American companies in certain sectors could be an interesting opportunity for them. We are seeing a pickup in activity for different sectors, as Carlos was mentioning, oil and gas and also energy and retail. And we believe that these companies will now have an opportunity to access the market and there will be demand for for their deals. Thank you, Fabiana. Carlos? I think outside Brazil, it's, uh, I think, a little similar. I think it's going to be a function of, first, the financial health of companies, whether companies can maintain, because that's going to impact ratings and that's going to impact access to capital markets. And I think you're going to see a gap between the companies that are sort of working through the crisis, but still operating and maintaining strong financial profile versus those companies that are going to be severely impacted by the crisis. And the, the more time passes, I think the more deteriorating you know, their finances are going to, uh, to be. And I think that's going to have an impact on their ability to raise transactions, particularly in the capital market. So I think those companies that are in a more difficult financial situation are going to be looking to the private investors for expensive equity deals or the private loans with sort of equity-like kickers, and then they, and then the relationship banks, obviously, that, that are there to help them during the difficult times, whereas the companies that are doing well financially or that are not really as impacted by the crisis, you know, they're going to continue to maintain liquidity. Obviously, that's been key. I think investors and, and rating entities are very, very focused on liquidity. So everybody that can draw under a revolving facility is drawing under it, even though it's expensive. And everybody that can raise capital, even if they don't have a specific use of proceeds, they, they're doing deals because they want to have basically cash on hand so that people don't perceive their businesses as risky and you know, rating agencies are, you know, also more comfortable with maintaining ratings. And then, you know, this is this, you know, the challenges also present opportunities. So companies want to have cash on hand in, in case there are, you know, M&A opportunities that are attractive. And with the way the market is imploding in some industries and cracking, there will be opportunities. I think companies want to be in a position to, to take advantage of them. We're also going to see a lot of investment from funds in various sectors because there's been a repricing for debt financing into the region. And I think for the past four or five years, debt financing has been so cheap that I think a lot of the equity investments and and fund investments are losing ground and, and losing a lot of opportunities because they can be competitive enough in terms of the low cost of capital. And I think that's changed now because there's been a huge repricing in terms of the financing that is available for 
companies in the region. And so that now, you know, investments from funds that are looking to have higher returns, you know, are, are you know, a little more competitive, if you, if you will, compared to the now less competitive bank debt. One of the things that happens after companies run out of liquidity is at some point they may become insolvent in a long-term recession. And I know Brazil has just enacted a new bankruptcy law. What do bankruptcy reforms mean for the ability of companies to reorganize and restructure instead of just liquidating in order to preserve either manufacturing capacity or preserve their labor force and to help stabilize an economy? And what does that mean for particular enterprises? The emergency COVID-19 bill that was recently approved by Congress, the bill was actually split into two. There were more important changes, more uh, long-anticipated and needed changes to the Brazilian bankruptcy law that were left for another moment in time. The, the Congress wanted to move rapidly with the transitory temporary amendments to the bankruptcy law to try to bring some relief to companies that want to continue in business and not making them going to courts to try to renegotiate their debts with creditors. Ultimately, the more comprehensive, fulsome changes to, to, to the Brazilian bankruptcy law have been left for another moment, as I was saying, and we expect that still this year, these permanent amendments will be made to the law and will bring it closer to the new trial model law for cross-border insolvencies and will add dispositions like dip financing, asset sales within a safer environment, and also fresh start for companies that are liquidated. So all these sort of more, I would say, important changes have not been made yet to the law. What we have now is an emergency bill that this general sentiment is that it will help companies and creditors as a whole, but it's really temporary, right? And it will allow for the equivalent of a 30-day moratorium once the law comes into effect. And all legal proceedings against debtors related to defaults will be suspended and uh, debtors will not be declared bankrupt during this period. But after that, if the parties don't come to an agreement, then they may initiate a voluntary proceeding with the bankruptcy court and uh, try still to negotiate the debt and agree on a plan going forward. And if still that doesn't help, that, that, that doesn't get to what the parties want to be, then they can start the judicial recovery proceeding following the, the law. But what the emergency bill brings is really a framework that's favorable for negotiation, for the parties to sit down and talk and avoid going to court. That's what we have for now. Thanks, Fabiana. If you look, though, at some companies that are operating throughout the region, I know we're working on the Avianca bankruptcy as an example, and not talking about that particular case, but why in general might a Latin American company look to filing a bankruptcy in the United States if it's eligible to do so? Carlos? Sure, that's a very interesting topic and, and, and something that we see as a developing trend. I think there, there's one sort of COVID-19 specific factor, which is that the you know, the bankruptcy court system in the U.S. Uh, can work electronically and sort of virtually, basically, and have been working in that way, at least, you know, a lot of the sort of procedural stuff is done electronically these days. I think it's, you know, in Latin America, that's not really the case. Courts are completely closed, and therefore, I think the ability of companies to seek relief locally is more limited. But I think ultimately, the, the goal is to try to have a process that would be expedient and that would be dynamic to allow the company to not completely destroy all the remaining value they have during the dependency of the insolvency. 
and also to be able to obtain financial assistance while they undergo bankruptcy. Because I think one of the issues that we see now in, in the region, and I think some industries, you know, more than other industries, is that, you know, some businesses have zero cash flow. So it's not just a question of having to restructure that because, you know, now you're not generating as much in dollars to repay what you owe. It's a question of, you know, your business being completely shut down because of, you know, basically government regulation and seeking relief and bankruptcy or insolvency to buy time and then to, you know, kind of reconstruct, uh, you know, sort of your capital structure uh, to be able to emerge from that bankruptcy and and be a sustainable business. And, And I think the U.S. system is far more used to dealing with those two challenges because, you know, it has done it in the past. You know, we did it in, you know, after the, the you know, the internet bubble with Enron and the period of bankruptcies that followed Enron. And then we did it again in 2008-9. And I think there's still a lot of liquidity in the U.S. market. Unlike previous crises, you know, I think the financial system in the U.S. is still very solid. And I think you have all the informal financial system of the investment funds that are very interested in, in deploying capital for these, uh, these types of solutions. And I think a legal system that is predictable and very sophisticated and very quick that is also fully functioning, which is, you know, it's <laughs> it's a big difference. Plus, you know, I think that that coupled with, you know, the availability of financing for sort of in the U.S. for these types of uh, proceedings, I think makes it more attractive now for companies within Latin America to come to the U.S. One key comment that I'd like to make, Alan, is that with the reopening of the economies in certain countries and the fact that there is so much global liquidity out there, and, you know, with, with capital injections that central banks made, investors will start to look for alternative investments. And I think this shows that there is a light at the end of the tunnel. And, you know, slowly the things will start to recover, I think, in the capital markets in Brazil. Yeah, that's, that's good to hear. Well, we'll leave it there. I know both of you are very busy. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk today. Muito obrigado. Muchísimas gracias. <laughs> De nada. Thank you. Thank you, Ellen. Good talking. Thank you for joining us for another Millbank Conversation. We trust you find our expertise and insights compelling. Learn more at millbank.com.